Hey, good morning, City Light Church. Good morning, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Open your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 18, and uh, we heard the key verses this morning, but I'm actually going to take you through chapters 18, 19, and 20 this morning, and so if everything goes right, we should get you out of here by about 3 or 4 p.m. Uh, All the new people just got really uncomfortable. Uh, This fall, we've been tracking through the life of a man named King David out of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. And let me just orient us really quick around where we are in our Bibles, and then we'll get to work in today's text. Uh, Just remember, we are in the Old Testament, so this is before Jesus was born. God has delivered his covenant people, the Israelites, out of slavery in Egypt, brought them into the promised land for some time now. He has been leading them himself, and yet his people, the Israelites, demand a physical earthly king to sit on a physical throne like all the other kings of the nations around them. And so God gives them what they want, and the first king of Israel was King Saul, who ends up being somewhat of a train wreck of a king. And so through a series of cowardly acts, uh, half-obediences, complete disobedience to the Lord, King Saul loses his anointing as God's king over his people and sort of careens his whole life and uh, authority and leadership into a hot grease fire, okay? This thing is a hot, hot mess. Now, overlapping King Saul's descent from leadership is King David's rise into leadership. And what we see in, in actually 15 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel is this overlapping story of Saul on his way out David on his way in, and that's actually the backdrop of our text that we are going to be in together this morning. Now, understanding where we're at in our Bibles, let me set up today's text this way. Isn't it true that one of the tests of a human heart is how we respond to the blessings of people around us, right? How many of you moms and dads, I'll just say it, have had that moment where you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook, and you're scrolling the thread, and you see the picture of your perfect friend with their perfect children in their perfectly ironed gap outfit, sitting in their perfectly clean, organized living room while rays of sunshine come through their perfectly clean glass windows onto their perfect pottery barn rug as their kids like braid each other's hair and do long division, sitting quietly on the floor. And you reluctantly like that photo only to look up and to see your own children have stripped half naked, have Cheerios smashed into their hair, a cookie behind the ear, and they're now fighting over Legos next to a pile of dirty laundry. Ever been there? No? Okay, one of us uh, is honest in the room, but we've been there, right, where you're kind of happy for your friend and you kind of want to just block all of their future feeds. We've been there when envy creeps into our hearts, and rather than celebrating the success of someone else around us, we start to resent them and actually desire something greater for ourselves. Well, that is actually the setting of today's text. See, there's this young man named David who has been killing the game, okay? If Instagram had been there, his feed would make Bieber's life look dull. This guy is young. It says he's good-looking. It says he has beautiful eyes, um, It also says that he has just killed uh, the nation's great enemy giant, Goliath. He's just come back into town. Uh, We read in today's text that women are literally writing songs about him and singing it. Um, And so this guy is killing the game. He would be like if Scott Frost were 3-0 and right now. 
like that who is who David would be, like the whole nation's fair-haired child, that is King David. Now, what we're going to see in our text is primarily the response or the reaction of two different kings to the successful uprising of David into his glory. And on the one hand, we're going to witness this guy named King Saul. He's the current reigning king in Israel, and he is watching the rise of the new anointed king. And Saul is going to respond with envy, jealousy, and pride. And he's not only going to unfriend David on Facebook, he's actually going to lay out a murder plot that we're going to track through three chapters of the Bible. Uh, Conversely, we're going to see a man named Jonathan. Jonathan was Saul's son. He was the crown prince of Israel, so the next in biological line to sit on the throne. And Jonathan is going to respond with humility and friendship. And to close the historical gap between then and now, there's really two points of intersection and application where I want us to examine our hearts this morning. Number one is this, how do we respond to the success of other people around us? Do we respond like Saul or do we respond like Jonathan? And secondarily and more importantly, we're going to see that King David, God's anointed king, points us forward to his ultimate anointed king, Jesus Christ. And the question for us becomes, are we willing to surrender, to follow, trust, and obey King Jesus, or will we demand control and the ultimate kingship over, over our lives like Saul did in his reign? And so the title of this morning's story is the sto- or a sermon is the story of three kings, and uh, that's going to be our outline. We're going to take a look at three kings this morning, and we're going to let the Word of God examine our hearts as we look at this text. So we're going to start with the first king, which is King Saul. If you have your notes, write down King Saul. Let's see where Saul's story begins here. I'm in 2 Samuel. I'm going to go back to 1 Samuel. Go 1 Samuel 18, starting in verse 6. It says, as they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, that was Goliath, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and musical instruments. At this point, Saul's singing, this is the best day of my life. This is fantastic. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. He's still thinking, this is the best ticker tape parade I have ever been to. I like this song. I like these women. Next verse. And David, his tens of thousands. Uh Uh-oh. Maybe not a great song anymore. I don't think these women meant it as a dig at Saul, but it's the way he took it. Look at verse 8. And Saul was... Very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Can you say jealousy and insecurity? That's Saul. What's happening? His glory, his fame are being overshadowed by an up-and-coming leader who's being blessed by God. And what does he do? He turns inward into self-preservation. Notice that Saul's thoughts right now are not on what is God doing? Where is Saul's thoughts? On Saul. To Saul, it's all about Saul, y'all. Y'all, it's all about Saul. To Saul, he's not even thinking about God. He is defending his position, his power, and it's a posture of a defense. How many of you know that when a person finds their identity in their success, the success of other people immediately becomes a threat to them? That's Saul. He, he, he turns 
to um, a posture of envy. And envy is the mother of malice, and malice gives birth to murder, and that's exactly what we see here. Over the next three chapters, Saul lets the seed of envy and jealousy and pride take and bear fruit, and the fruit is murder. In three chapters, he's going to try to kill King David eight different times. I wish I had time to take you through all the stories because they're kind of crazy. Do read your Bibles. Uh, But let me just give you the highlights. Here's the eight murder attempts just over three chapters. Here's the first one. In 18, verses 10 through 11, Saul chucks a spear at David, misses him twice. Hashtag fail. Uh, uh, Verse 20 through 29, Saul gives his daughter, Michael, to David to be his wife for the bride price of 100 Philistine foreskins. So he says, yes, you can have my daughter, but I'm going to get you killed in the process because you need, need to go out to 100 Philistine Gentile pagans and bring back a little token that says that you did it, right? What does David do? He brings back 200. You guys, you thought it was awkward when you asked for your wife's hand in marriage. Imagine that one. Well, you can, but I'll tell you what you got to bring me. Kids, ask your parents. It's a whole nother thing. We don't have time here. Verses 1 through 7, 19, Saul sends servants to kill David. Jonathan talks him out of it. Very next verse, um, or yeah, next verse, Saul tries the spear chucking thing again, misses, hashtag weak sauce. Uh, Very next verse, Saul sends messengers to kill David. Michael, David's wife that he got for 204 skins, uh, actually spares his life when she puts an idol in a bed and some goat skin on the head. It's a whole thing. I'm telling you guys, read your Bibles. This is incredible stuff. Uh, Verse uh, 19, 18 through 24, Saul chases David to Ramah to kill him. The Spirit of God comes and arrests Saul. We're going to read that in just a moment. And then the next chapter, Saul demands that David be brought to him, and he chucks a spear at his own son, Jonathan, and Jonathan helps David escape. Can we just say crazy maniac, y'all? This guy has turned into a spear-chucking, wild, crazed maniac. Why? Because he let the seed of envy, jealousy, and pride take root in his life, and it corroded him. So he's clearly got some issues here. He's clearly a rage-filled maniac. But listen, we are not reading our Bibles responsibly unless we let our Bibles read us. Are you with me? So we need to ask the question, where do we see Saul in us? I would ask the question this way, what does your heart do when someone else gets a blessing that you don't get? What is your instinctual reaction when you desire something that you can't have, but you have to watch your friends, your families, and your coworkers get the very thing that you longed for? The house or the spouse, the pregnancy or the promotion, the job. What does your heart do? What is your knee-jerk reaction? There's a saying that's very true about unforgiveness. You guys have probably heard it. It's very powerful. It says unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Well, as toxic as unforgiveness is, envy and jealousy left alone in a human heart will corrode us from the inside out and leave us but an empty shell of the person that we used to be. That's what happens to Saul. Saul lets this envy blind him. He's still the king. People are singing his praises. He has the kingdom, and yet he let envy and jealousy erode him and corrode him, and it strips from him the very thing that he's trying to hang on to. In fact, let me show you something in 1 Samuel 19. There's going to be a very deeply symbolic passage here that is profound in what the author is trying to do, and it's very application in our lives. Let me just read this passage, 1 Samuel 19, 22 through 24. It's going to feel kind of obscure at first, but I'm going to connect some dots for us. 
that hopefully should bring on some light bulbs and help us appreciate what God's trying to show us right here. So real quick, here's the passage. 1 Samuel 19, 22 through 24. It says, Then he himself, that's Saul, went to Ramah and came to a great well that is in Seku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are in Naioth in Ramah. And he went there to Naioth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naioth in Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all the day long and all the day night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets. All right, press pause. Stay with me. Quick asterisk. This is my main point, but I got to address it. About the word prophesying, okay? In Scripture, most prominently when it talks about prophesying, especially in the Old Testament, it's talking about God's prophets who speak true words about him. Those with the office of prophet actually spoke the words of Scripture. Um, That's one way it means. In general, it can be anyone speaking true things about God that is prophecy. But in a more narrow sense, it sometimes can be um, used to describe someone who is under the absolute control of influence and of the Spirit of God. And that's what it's talking about here. So when Saul's prophesying, he's not writing new words of Scripture like the prophet Isaiah. He's being arrested by the Spirit, so he's no longer in control, so he can't pursue David to kill him. Okay, so That's the prophesying thing. Now, here's what's absolutely fascinating about this little passage that I want to show you. It shows us the descent of Saul as a a result of his pride and envy in a form that's an exact replication of his rise to kingship in chapters 9 through 11, but in parody form, like an SNL skit. Like, it's meant to be funny if you understand it in its context. It's a comedic tragedy. You laugh and you weep like what a hot mess. So let me show you really quick. Here's a snapshot version of the events of Saul's ascent into leadership. So first in chapter 9 of verse 6, he comes to Ramah. He comes to a well, sounds familiar, and asks for directions to find Samuel. He prophesies with a group of prophets. The people marvel, is Saul also among the prophets? And then the Spirit of God comes on Saul and invests him with authority. Now, a few chapters later, after pride, envy, and jealousy have taken root in his heart, we're going to see the exact same sequence but in tragic comedy form. This is just brilliant literature, y'all. Here's Saul's descent from the throne. Saul comes to Ramah in verse 22. He comes to a well and asks for directions to find Samuel. He prophesies with a group of prophets. The people mock, is Saul also among the prophets? And the spirit comes on Saul and divests him of his clothing. Do you see what the biblical author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is trying to show us here? That when we let pride, envy, and jealousy take root in our hearts, it will reverse every good blessing in our lives. Isn't it true in our own lives? You walk into that office on your first day of the new job that you've wanted your whole life and you've got a box of your personal items and you put them on your desk and you meet with your supervisor for your instructions and orientations and you let pride, envy, and jealousy take root in that place. You will meet with that same boss for your pink slip. You will go to that same desk and get the same box of the same stuff and walk out the same door you came in on. You meet with the pastor for premarital counseling. You move into the new house together. 
you let pride, jealousy, and envy go unchecked and take root in your heart, you're going to move out of that same house. You're going to meet with that same pastor for post-marital counseling. Envy, jealousy, and pride, when we let it take root in our lives, will corrode and take back every good and gracious blessing in our life. So can I ask you, what are the areas of envy and pride and jealousy that you are tolerating in your heart? I don't have any, cause, but I'll bet you sinners have a whole bunch. I'll be the first to confess I am the chief of insecure envy, okay? Let me just give you a little snapshot into how dumb this sin can be and how dumb I am when I give into it. So it's time for a Chris story. So Pastor Chris, best friend, planted this church together, would do anything for this man. We, we love each other so much, and we compete at absolutely everything we do. And I win 100% of the time. That's just his unfortunate lot in life. So this last uh, spring and summer, Chris and his wife built a new house. And it's this beautiful house, big, beautiful house. And I'm not jealous of the house at all because hashtag, hashtag family money. You know, he married the right girl. Good for him. So he got a nice house, big, beautiful house. And... I'm really not jealous. I'm so glad. If you know him, he grew up poor, like getting houses kicked out. It's a whole thing. So I'm like, this is awesome. Big, beautiful house. We go, we tour the big, beautiful house. Chip and Joanne designed this kitchen. It's just perfect. The upstairs, the downstairs, the drink fridge in the basement. No jealousy. I love it. But then, then we go to the garage. And in the third stall of the garage, there that his father-in-law purchased for him is a brand new shiny, cherry red, Toro Time Cutter ZTR lawnmower, y'all. And not just any ZTR Toro Time Cutter lawnmower. It's the commercial edition that has suspension on the wheels and the seat. Okay, this is a comfort ride. So there's like air suspension behind you. So you can, your body can be doing this and your drink doesn't even move, you know? That LaCroix can just sits right there. You can fill your cup to the brim. Not only that, it's got a, it's got a 24 horse V-twin motor and a 60 inch deck, a 60 inch deck. Do you know how big that is? That's big. Like you can mow a one acre lawn in about 15 minutes. It's going to look like Augusta National Golf Course. And in that moment, I was green with envy over a lawnmower, y'all. I've never felt more middle-aged than that moment, <laughs> lusting after a lawnmower. I don't care about the house, all that, but all I'm thinking is he can mow circles around my stupid Craigslist busted thing. I can't even keep air in the front tire. I gotta pump it up every time I mow, and then it's flat by the time I'm done. He doesn't even appreciate the dumb mower. <laughs> but that's how dumb envy can be. We never grow out of it. It just changes its expression in our life as we age. Isn't that true? When I was in high school, you know what it was? The starter jacket. All the cool kids got the Parker quarter zip starter jacket with their favorite team. I had like the Walmart full zip. So you carry your trapper keeper in the front. Maybe people think it's a starter jacket, you know? You've been there. Then high school, what? It's a nice car with the loudspeakers. Now it's lawnmowers. You know, what's next? Like Velcro shoes? Like, bro, those orthopedics. So dang, got to get some of those, you know? Those pleated khakis with the elastic, man, those are really nice on Thanksgiving. I got to give me some of those. That's how dumb envy and jealousy can be, and none of us are immune to envy like Saul's. 
And listen, we might not be chucking spears trying to kill somebody in our lives, but envy unchecked will kill friendships. Pride unchecked will kill joy. And most importantly, it will kill contentment in Christ. And so I would ask you, what are the areas in your life where you've allowed the blessings of others to sow seed of envy in your heart? Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Watching classmates, siblings get promoted, do well. It's a pernicious cancer that will poison your inside. But listen to me, listen to me. The cure to comparison isn't just counting your blessings. It's rooting your contentment in Jesus Christ. Are you with me? The cure to comparison isn't just counting your blessings because someone's always got a better mower. Someone always has more toys. Someone always has the next thing. It's not going to, the cure to comparison is actually finding your contentment in Jesus Christ. When you can actually believe what Ephesians 1 says, that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, and that's enough. I'm going to be content in that. When I can honestly say, man, I am who God made me to be. I have what he's entrusted me with, and I'm secure, and I am thankful, and my life is dominated by gladness, worship, and joy, and no longer comparison and envy. Amen? You know how freeing that is? Saul's story serves as a great warning to turn from jealousy and pride. But I want to show you another king. There's another king in this story. And his life is going to show us the the pathway to life and joy. And so I want to look at, at king number two. I want to look at Jonathan. Write down Jonathan next to king number two. So we're going to start back in verse one with Jonathan of 18. Remember, David has just slayed the giant. He's just come back into town. We remember from chapter 16, two weeks ago, that Chris preached. He's already been anointed as the next king of Israel. And now he rolls back into town after his victory. Let's see how Jonathan responds in verse one. It says, as he finished speaking to Saul, that was David, The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. And his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan's response is in every way the exact opposite of Saul. Where Saul was envious of David, Jonathan celebrates his victory. He loves him as his own soul. Even in chapters 19 and 20, we're going to see Jonathan actually um, disrespects his father to go and warn David of the death threats that are coming his way. So first, we see in Jonathan an incredible picture of humility. He's not an insecure leader. He's not plagued with envy and jealousy. He's not threatened by the success of other people. And that frees him up to actually celebrate the success of David. He chooses not to harbor resentment and envy. And because of that, he's a free man. David is killing the game, and Jonathan is just happy for him. He says, let's be friends. And because of that, he has a freedom not to compare And he actually gets to enjoy the blessings and victories of a man um, that that won those and not himself. But so the the first application of Jonathan is is definitely humility and celebrating the success of others. But I want to show you something even bigger that's going on here. Because what's happening in here is, is is more than just a humble man celebrating the success of a friend. Remember this, I called Jonathan a king. Well, he's not yet, but he will be. 
or he should be. He is the crown prince to the throne in Israel. He is next in biological line to receive the crown. And so where Saul had everything to lose by David rising up and being the new anointed king, so too does Jonathan. Jonathan is next in line, and now David, this guy, stands in the way of Jonathan's own hopes for kingship. But how does he respond? Let me show you verse 4 one more time. Look at verse 4. Let me get back to it. It says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. Now hold on a second. Was David cold? Why did Jonathan give him his coat? Listen, this is a profoundly symbolic political act that is happening. He's not giving uh, David his coat because David is cold. He's giving him what? The royal robe. As the son of the king, he has the royal garb on. He has the royal robe, the royal shield. Uh, Jonathan is not just giving him his coat. He's giving him what? The kingdom. He's recognizing you are the rightful king of the kingdom. He is submitting his role as the next to be the king and giving it over to Jonathan. In fact, in chapter 23, he says it explicitly. The, the, the hand of the Lord is on you. You've been anointed. You will be the next king. Just remember me as you come into your kingdom. See, we see a very different picture where Saul was not even thinking about God. He was just clinging to position and power. Jonathan has a God view of things. He's saying, no, 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 man, if God's hand is on you, then I'm on your team, even if that threatens to take something from me, because I want to be where God is. And in so doing, he gives him the entire kingdom. He surrenders his rights to God's true king. And so the question that Jonathan's life confronts us with isn't just, will we be jealous of others? That's important. But the bigger question is, will we actually surrender everything in our lives to God's true king as our king? See, remember, in this whole story, as we look at First and Second Samuel, we need to remember that King David has established the kingly line, but ultimately, who's going to fulfill that in the end? Who's God's ultimate anointed king who's going to sit on that throne forever? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God's ultimate anointed king. David is but a foreshadow of him. And so what does that make Saul and Jonathan? That makes them but a picture of you and me which means each one of us needs to decide what we are going to do with God's anointed king. In fact, that's the last point. The last king that I want us to look at is actually you and me. So in your notes, king number three, write down me. You might even write down your own name. You may never have thought of yourself as a king before, but you are. Listen, you have rule and reign over some things. And the areas where you have rule and reign, where you get to call the shots, that's your little K kingdom. And you are little kings over that wherein you have dominion. So for me, I own a home. I call the shots there. I have children. I can lead them. I call the shots there sometimes. I have money. I have a body. I have a thought life. I have future plans. All the things wherein I have control. That is my kingdom. And I serve as a little K king over my kingdom. And so do you. And just like Saul and Jonathan had to decide if they were going to let God's anointed be their king and have control, so too you and I need to decide, are we willing to surrender and hand over our little kingdoms to his control, or are we going to cling to power and position on our own? But before I press that in even further, let me just pause 
and help us remember what kind of king would we be handing over our lives to? Well, we see a picture of it in David, don't we? We learned about it last week. Israel, remember, didn't stand a chance against their enemy giant Goliath. They had no hope on their own, but God sent an unlikely savior king to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves, to slay the giant. He didn't come as a king who pushed his subjects up to the front lines to defend him as the king. He flipped the whole order. The king went to the line, defeated the the enemies on behalf of his subjects. And so his victory became their victory that they got to benefit from and live in light of. And so too, you and I did not stand a chance against our enemy giants of sin, death, Satan. Not one of us in here is sinless. Not one of us in here stands a chance before a holy and righteous judge on that last day. Not one of us in here can will ourselves into a different eternal destiny. And yet God sent an unlikely savior king who came and what did he do? He went to the battle lines on our behalf and on the cross. He stuck it to the devil. He stuck it to sin. He defeated on that, death, on that last day and his victory becomes our victory. We have a king who didn't come to take something from us, but to give something to us. His very life to be our life. So what would hold us back? Well, the one, the one test is, are we willing to let go of our pride and say, I'm not my savior. I can't be my own king. Jesus, be my king in my place. That's the question before us. And so will we respond like Saul or Jonathan? To respond like Saul is to say, listen, I don't need saving. I'm good. I'm good on my own. I'm a, I'm a good king of my life. I don't want to surrender control. I'll lead my life. It's my time. It's my money. It's my decisions. It's my thought. It's my body. It's my future. It's my plans. It's my family. It's my kids. It's all mine. And I will be king hands off. Or to respond like Jonathan is to say, I can't be my own savior and I can't be my own king. And to recognize Jesus Christ is the one who's meant to be the king. So I'm going to take the robe off. I need someone to go to the line for me. I need someone to take my guilt and shame. I need someone to lead my life. Jesus, you are my king. Take my life. My body belongs to you. My money belongs to you. My time belongs to you. My future belongs to you. My thoughts belong to you. My family, it is yours. You are my king. You call the shots. I submit to you. And so as clear as I can land this plane today, I just want to appeal first to the non-Christians in the room. Listen, if you have not bowed your knee to King Jesus, the invitation for you this morning is to see what a good and glorious and gracious king is inviting you into his kingdom. He doesn't want something from you. He wants to, he wants to give you his very life, his very righteousness. And the only thing it will cost you is your pride. You will need to bow your knee and say, I can't be my own savior. I can't be my own Lord. I need someone greater than myself to forgive me and to lead me. And the invitation is very real. If you would surrender your heart, bow your knee to King Jesus, he would give you life eternal. He would give you his promised Holy Spirit. He would give you his promised eternal security. He would be your king. You would be in his kingdom for all of eternity. For the Christians in the room, can I also just say, for those of us who have bowed the knee, who have taken off the crown and the robe and put it on Jesus as our king, isn't it possible that every now and then we just kind of want to throw it back on? Like, not, not in a final kind of way, but, you know, you're still my king, still savior, but since this whole thing is, is all about grace and forgiveness in this one area, I'm, I'm just going to call this, I'll be right back. You know, I got to have my crown back in this one little area, 
and be king in just this little niche, and now, and now we're going to put it back on and crown the king once again. But listen to me. What we learn from the life of Saul is that when we take the reins to lead our life, the very thing we're trying to cling to is the very thing we're going to lose. Saul didn't want to let go of the kingdom, so we held on. And what did it cost him? The whole kingdom. Listen, I have just found in my life that, that, that when my interests and G, when my will and Jesus' will are in conflict and I choose my path, it does not go well. But when I trust Jesus as king, even though it feels like death in the moment, it leads to life and joy. That's why Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and follow me. What does he say? For whoever loses his life for my sake finds it, right? But whoever tries to save his life will lose it. That's Saul. That's Saul. So the invitation for you is to let Jesus be king in every area of my life. Can I just say, I followed Jesus for almost 20 years right now. And I've just found that he is a much more competent, qualified, and able, and gracious king of my life than Gavin Johnson ever has been. He knows what he's doing. He spoke the world into existence. He created me in my mother's womb. He loves me more than I love myself, and he knows what he's doing. City Light, would we see the invitation of Jesus' lordship and kingship not as a religious burden on our lives, but the best invitation? We don't have to be king. Do you know what kind of pressure that takes off when you don't need to be the boss of your own life anymore, but you can entrust it to the one who made you? Oh, it is good, good news. So City Light, Jesus is a good, competent, and trustworthy king. Would we be a people? Would we be a church who love Jesus, worship Jesus, lift high Jesus, and surrender everything in our lives to Jesus as our king? So this morning, we're going to respond by taking communion. And I love this meal because we are reminded of the entrance price for you and me to come into the kingdom of God. See, we have a king who actually came down and as a king became our sacrifice. The king became our own sacrifice. And he gave up his body and blood for us and now gives it to us by grace. So let me remind you of our instructions out of 1 Corinthians 11. As for, it says that Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples saying, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What kind of king lays down his life for his people? Jesus Christ. And in this meal, we remember that. And so if you have trusted him as savior and king, would you come forward humbly, gladly, with a worshipful heart and receive uh, the family meal that he has for us. If you're not yet a Christian, uh, we encourage you, don't take this meal until you've surrendered your heart to Jesus. The very next verses remind us not to take this moment lightly. This is a sacred, holy moment. This is not snack time. We are remembering the body and blood of our King Jesus Christ. And so we'd invite you to stay in your seats unless you're ready to bow your knee to Jesus, in which case, the invitation is open to any. Uh, if you're new, the communion servers are going to come forward. They will break the bread for you. You dip it in the juice, partake that way. Come forward whenever you're ready. Uh, there's a gluten-free station in the back, and uh, there's a team of prayer volunteers in the back that would love to pray with you and pray for you uh, during this time as well. So would you guys stand to your feet? Let me pray, 
And we will continue to worship through communion. And so, Jesus Christ, there is no king like you. You break all the rules. Everything in this world says that kings come with power. They come to take. They come to demand. And you are the one king, the servant king, who came to give your life as a ransom for many. You were the king who got down and worshipped or and washed the dirty feet of your disciples. You were the king who went to the cross for the freedom and, and redemption of all who would trust in you. And Lord, even now in this moment, I just feel compelled to pray if there are those who are wrestling right now, who have tried to be a savior to themselves and a king of their own lives and are wrestling with maybe this isn't going in the direction I thought it would be. God, that you would extend a gracious invitation, not just through my words, but directly from your spirit to their heart to know that you want to take their sins, take their guilt, take their shame and all the pressure that comes with that to give them your righteousness, your forgiveness, your favor, your favor, and take the reins of their lives. In this moment, would you help them, Holy Spirit, to surrender control? Help them to pray even along with me now. Oh, Jesus, I am but a sinner. I have missed the mark. I have tried to be king, and I now see I need someone greater than myself. Jesus, I believe you are the sinless son of God who came into the world to save sinners, and I am one of them. Jesus, would you forgive me of my sins? Would you give me your righteousness? Would you adopt me into your family? Bring me into your kingdom, and would you now be my king? I give my life to you. And God, now as we come forward uh, to the sacred meal, oh, would there be pure gladness in our hearts to know that we have a king who loves us, who hasn't left us, who is present, who no matter what chaos is happening in our stories right now is still faithful, still on his throne, still leading, still redeeming all things for the good of those who love him. Oh, Jesus, would you continue the spirit of worship as we celebrate communion in Jesus' name, amen.